Well, it requires conversations, definitely, right? You you need you need to have this matching in place. Who should talk to who, uh, and in many cases, also about what. And then you need a discipline around actually making sure that those conversations take place. Because as you know, I mean, just because we have one conversation, that is not building a connection, right? You you need more than that. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. It is hard to believe it, but we're in the last quarter of 2023. This is the time when leaders begin reviewing their organization's performance in the past year and begin to think about the coming year. In some organizations, that may mean just minor course corrections in their strategy or execution, while in others, it may mean bold new initiatives. But in either circumstance, success or failure requires more than just a great vision or even just a great plan. It requires execution, and that means people. Joining me today to discuss change management and the surprising ways people and their relationships can make it or break it is Jeppe Vilstrud Hansgaard. Jeppe is the founder and CEO of Innovisor, a boutique advisory firm in change analytics and organizational network analysis. Jeppe has trained and worked with executives in more than 25 countries and is a frequent lecturer to executive MBA programs. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Jeppe. Thank you. Good morning, Mike. So you work in the area of change management, and anybody who's spent much time in either a large or small organization has probably been through some sort of you know culture change or strategy change that wasn't successful. Uh, and I think probably more often than not, they're 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 unsuccessful, or at least they don't hit the targets that that leadership really wants them to you know to to do. What do you what do you think the main reason that that we don't get what we want to out of our change initiatives? Well, there's so many reasons, right? Maybe we're too ambitious, or maybe we we just don't know the organizations where we want to conduct the change in. So, so one of the things that I uh, have seen a lot is that uh, um, we believe we can kind of impose change on our people top down. But that's not really how people are making sense of change, right? It actually has to make sense to the people if you want to succeed. I think that that's really the biggest disconnect. This is great research uh, from uh, Yoshida, and I think this is actually dating back to the 70s, where he talks about the iceberg of ignorance. And you are probably familiar with it, Mike. But it, it says something like that, that, that at the top, you know about 4% of the problems in the organization and at the front line, you know 100%, right? And that is the disconnect that you have when you are working with change. You need really to listen to the front lines, to the people to understand what is really going on and what is it that you need to care for when you conduct the changes. Yeah, it's it's a lot like the Jahari window, right? I know what I know, and I know what, you know, you know, you know a certain thing, and I know what you know, but I don't know what you don't know, and there are things you know I don't know, and all of that. So... Uh, and leadership often, and I'm guilty of it, especially I think it's probably true with leaders who are entrepreneurial or visionary. We think people get it. 
right? And uh, you know, I'll, uh, I in the past before my my team uh, kind of you know put reins on me. I used to come back from conferences and I would be so excited and okay, here's what we're going to do. And this will make a giant change and it would have, but if they didn't get what was in it for them or how, you know, not in, not even necessarily them personally, but them in the execution of their job and what, how they were going to contribute to it. They weren't always on board with it the way I needed them to be, or didn't even get the concept. So um, when you're talking to leaders, then, uh, about these different networks and, and you, you know, so it can't just be top down. So what's my, what's my alternative? If it's not just top down, uh, how do we influence change in some other structure? Yeah, no. So, so one of the things I'm often looking at is that we, we, we talk about how do people make sense of this change that they are now facing. Right. And then it's really important. There's, there's this formula I'm referring to, which I read in atomic habits, um, you're probably familiar with that book. Where James Clear, it's great, yeah. Exactly, it's the best book I've read this summer, actually. So the, the close beats the many, I'm normally saying, and the many beats the powerful when people are trying to make sense of things, right? And what does that mean? That means when I try to make sense of things, I get in contact with people I trust, that I sympathize with, and that I feel that I'm competent. And, of course, people that I know, Right. That is, that is the close people. And that is a small group of people, really, right? And then when I've made sense with those people, I look around and see what is happening around me, right? Are people uh, starting to, to adopt the changes that, that people want me to, right? And, and then if they do it, that's the many. And then the very last thing is actually the powerful, right? Because I don't really like that people impose something on me, right? So, so I think the... When it really goes wrong with change, it's we do it the other way around. We start with the powerful, then we say we do mass communication to the many, and then maybe at the end we end with talking to individuals, right? Right, and and that's I think those those that small group that just surrounds the people who actually need to execute the change and how they do their daily work uh, when they when they're not on, or they don't seem like they're on board or they're not getting it. In yeah. some organizations, they just get targeted as uh, as you know, obstacles or uh, old-fashioned or resistant to change, and and what you're saying is it, it's probably the matter that leadership is, has has got the cart before the horse, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I definitely think that if you can get get those people on board, right, that's where the traction is for the change. One of the reasons why we always fail is that we forget about those people. Uh, the, the traction is in convincing those people out there in all the small groups and cliques and tribes, those people that people listen to. And we, it's it's like in the schoolyard in the old days, right? You you know how it is, right? You had the cliques and the groups and tribes. If you wanted to organize a big party, you need to get into every single one of those groups really to convince people to join you, right? And it's the same thing. So we can't just make the announcement, but especially <laughs> in a larger organization that can be that could be challenging though, right? How do I, how do I, you know, are we talking, I and mean, if I've got, you know, 500 people in my organization, does that mean 500 individual conversations and, and who's going to make those, how do you, how do you, how do you have, you know, get those folks on board uh, and not take, spend a year uh, just doing that? Exactly. And, and see, that's, that's where the, the, our analytics has been really helpful. So we found something which we, which we discovered here actually over the years is if we can get to the right 3% of the people, 
they actually make sense to the 90% of the of the organization. Uh, it's something you can, if you want to follow it, we call it the hashtag 3% rule, uh, where we have cases and articles and videos and what have you. And, but it, the, the concept is really, if we can find those 3%, they will do the work for you. Hmm. They are the sense makers. And it's, of course, in, in this case, how do you find them? It's, it's a matter of, of asking people, who is it that you uh, go to for help and advice? Who is it that you uh, find energizing, et cetera? So you understand those relationships, right? Who is it that people seek out? So we would call those in the social media world influencers, exactly. uh, you know, people that that people turn to and look to and, and trust. Uh, and so you said just ask people, are most people self-aware enough to know how much influence other people have on them? Or are there, or do you have to ask the questions in specific ways? <laughs> you know, so to the people, you, if you ask the people, they don't know how much influence they have, which is the reason why you need to go to peer identification. Okay. Uh, in, in many cases, what we see is that uh, those people that have the most influence, they have no clue that they have influence. Ah, okay. uh, they, they uh, I mean, I only got an anecdotal evidence of this on this, but but uh, often the introverts are actually the some of the most influential people we see, which is kind of intuitive, right? Because if we think about it, we think, oh, it must be the loudspeakers. It must be those ones who are talking loud in the town hall meetings, etc., right? And it's not. And far from it. We also think it's it's the high performers. It's not the high performers. It's the people that are just like you and me, right? We trust people that are like a, what we see when we look in the mirror. So that's interesting. So because I can see that playing out, and you know, you're in you're in Europe, but here, especially here in the U.S., I can definitely see in in just our our public and social dialogue around politics and social issues. Uh, a lot of, a lot of people are realizing that the, the most vocal folks on either side of the issue don't represent the mass, that center of, of folks. And so you're saying it's the same in the organization. So if we're going to identify those in the organization, do you, is that part of like a 360 process that we're doing? And we just slide that in there as a as a question in our 360 feedback process, or how do you how do you really figure out who those three percent are? Yeah, so 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 you you need to ask those questions, right? That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. you, you will never get just the directly answer. ask. Who do you trust? Is it like a question? Who do you trust? Or what what? Yeah, no, one, of the, question, one of the questions I would ask is uh, so who do you go to for help and advice? Another question that I really like is who gives you energy in your daily work life? Because I mean, energy is magnetic, right? You will seek that out. If 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 you give me energy, I will make sure that I am actually talking to you every day, okay. right? So so it's it's question like this that actually uh, or the that determines traits of 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 influence. You do not ask directly who influences you. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so you kind of need to go around it, and then then you need to look at the networks because if you have this. Then I, now I know Yeppe is influencing Mike or is, is looking to Mike. Then I can start to draw lines between people. And and when you aggregate that, right, all of a sudden you have a network of people being connected to each other. Some people being close to each other, others being far away from each other and totally disconnected from each other. And as you can imagine, I mean, the biggest organization we've done this with was, uh, was 200,000 people. That's an enormous network of people, right, connected to each other in different ways. And, and that's where you need to have an algorithm actually to help you identify who should we actually engage in this. 
And if you just do it top down, or if you ask people to self-appoint to be a change ambassador, you're not getting there. I mean, who would self-appoint? Yeah. Yeah, you know the answer, right? Yeah, right. It's often the 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 folks who you know, it's it's like politics. The people who want it, I would never want to vote for. Uh, you know, anybody who wants that in that role uh, is probably not the right person for it. So, uh, can I just say one thing? Yeah, that yeah. reminds me of, of one of the. There's a fantastic quote from Abraham Lincoln that he actually said in, uh, let me see, uh, 1840 something, where he was trying to de- de- determine or, or tell what was his. Um, how could he run a successful campaign, political campaign? And 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 one of the things, one of his principles was that to persuade the undecided, send in someone they trust. Okay. And and if you just hear that word, they trust, right? That's the important part. Because it's not we trust. It's not someone we trust that we should send in, right? You actually look at who is it that that has the influence out there. And he already knew that in 18, I think it's 1841. And it makes sense. And it's, it, it, I guess it's it's not a, a new concept, except that it's not what we seem to be traditionally doing, uh, yeah, at least in, in the corporate entity. Um, so we, we we identify those folks. And and this sounds like a, a use of algorithms or artificial intelligence that shouldn't get people too up in arms and with pitchforks out in the front yard. Uh, so we can, you know, actually use, you know, I, you know, I'm assuming it's some sort of AI that says these are all the connections and here's your 3%. We identify those 3%, then what do we do with them? I mean, is this where we get them all together or how do we, how do we get them on board? Yeah. And so I, I, I typically draw a two by two and how I'm re- very much aware that people uh, can't see me uh, maybe if they're listening in the car, right? But the two by two uh, goes like this. You got formal on one side uh, to the left and you got informal to the right. And then you got structured at the top and you got unstructured at the bottom. So very similar. Let me just go forward, uh, go through the four quadrants. So if you have at the top, you have top down communication. As a, I mean, you might have a function for this, right? It's your corporate communication, really. It's, it's formal and it's structured. What do you have in the other quadrant? Uh, right below, you got uh, unstructured and, and formal. This is where the leaders, right? Now they've communicated what they want you to achieve, right? Or do, uh, this is where they move around in the organization, hopefully role modeling what you're trying to achieve, right? Uh, we, we do that already, right? This is what most organizations actually do with change. We do some leadership training. We all good. When you know the 3%, you can actually add something in the informal sphere. So in the informal structured sphere, you can actually start to have engagement with the 3%. You can listen to them. You can try to understand what's going on in, uh, in, in their world, right? So I normally say, listen, listen, and listen, and then have a conversation. And we have that conversation. You might find out they want to join you in your initiative and help you. They want to co-create activities with you. So it actually makes sense in their little group or tribe, right? And that is important because when you do that, they become insiders on the change. And that's really the trick. You want to get them to the point where the insiders, and then they start to speak their, your case to their uh, to the ones that actually trust them the most, which is everybody else. They are in the bottom right quadrant, which uh, is uh, informal uh, and unstructured, right? They are all the people just trying to make sense of what is going on in the organization. 
and and that big change that is suddenly coming, right? And it's not until it makes sense to those people that the change is actually happening. Change is never happening just because you communicate at the top. It it happens when it makes sense to the people. And I imagine it would be easy for a corporate leader to to identify if once they get to the point where they've identified those three percent to pull them together and say, here's what we're going to do, go sell it to your, to the team. But what you're saying is they need to be involved in figuring it out, you know, and and understanding what the issues are and, and, and maybe even having opportunity to give feedback into, okay, well, if this is the resolution you're going to suggest, here's what the impact would be on, on this group of people that, uh, that I'm a part of, or that I'm, you know, ultimately influencing. Exactly. That, that is that is the way you need to make sure they are on board with it, right? And if they're not on board with it, then you'll have resistance building up, and, and that's where you, you get the pain. So, you know, COVID happened, and I'm, I, I, in 2024, I'm going to try and go uh, 12 months without saying the word COVID in a single podcast, but uh, we're not there yet. So, um, but we are. We've gone remote uh, or hybrid. And that's got to affect these informal communications and relationships. So, what do you are you have y'all done any work to look at what what these different working environments have have meant for those kind of that kind of relationship? <laughs> Too many to to go through, <laughs> but but yes. So so if you just go back to two thousand and twenty, right when we all were sent home, we were used to working in the office. Many of us, right. What happened? Well, what really happened was that those re- big networks, right, they got disconnected from each other, except for the people that were, we were really close to. We stayed connected to our close friends. Right. Or our close relationships in the workshop, right? So what we can see is that, well, they basically got, I mean, the networks in the organizations got more disconnected from each other. They shrunk by, I think, 30% or something like that, uh, which means that suddenly it became harder really to to have those water cooler conversations with people you, you only saw maybe every two weeks or whatever, right? But the people we really trusted and we we talked to, right? We we stayed in contact with them. So so those influencers, as you call them, right? The three percent, they stayed the same. Oh, interesting. Uh, but and and here's the but, of course. People also changed jobs, right? During the pandemic, you had the mm-hmm. what was it called? The quiet quitting and right, and, the and resignation, right? all that. Yeah. And, and then you ask, so, so, so what kind of impact did that have on uh, on the networks? And I can tell you that those people that joined a new company in that period, right after the pandemic hit, so from about March 2020, and then until September 2020, in our numbers at least, we can see that they are significantly less integrated into the informal networks than the people that actually joined as from October 2020. Mm. And I think that was because we just didn't have the mechanisms in place to figure out how do we connect newcomers, right? We, we did it in the old ways. We didn't know how to do it. And, and, and I mean, to this day, we can still see that people that joined in that period from March 2020 to September 2020, they're still less integrated than the people that join afterwards. And I think that that's actually pretty interesting. So yeah, that so that says a lot about the importance of onboarding and mentoring yeah. new employees in, in a team and things like that. Yeah, we actually have been recommending to our clients that 
they actually get in touch with that group of people and make sure they're actually getting, you know, we call it reboarding, right? So what are you recommending then? So let's say we're a, a largely hybrid or fully remote even uh, team and we want to we want to get somebody plugged into this informal network. What is What are your recommendations to your clients about how to do that? Yeah, so so if you understand the networks, you have you have several levels of the on, onboarding or the, the the connecting of this, right? Of course, you need to to understand what is the team that I should belong to, but what is more important actually for you to understand? Okay, so who when I face these critical problems, who are the go-to people that I need to get in touch with, and 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 can I build that relationship to them so so they actually feel it's okay to ask for help these people are actually accessible to me. So one of the things we've seen, for example, um, in pharma companies is that people are actually afraid to ask for help. So, so and, and, and actually now I'm referring to some research we did in, a, uh, in an R&D organization. They are innovating. They are, I mean, it's new pharma products. What should those people do? They should definitely talk to each other, right? Uh, but in, but in that research, we identified here that actually it's only about 30% that will actually ask a colleague for help if they face a complex problem, 30%. But if they got asked themselves if they would help if a colleague asked them, it was 70% that said they would definitely help their colleague if they got asked, right? So you got 30%, you got 70%. And what is that? That's an opportunity gap for me. I need to make sure that we can actually move the 30% that asked for help as far over here as possible. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative. Premium background checks with fast and friendly service. 24 years ago, I founded Imperative to help risk-averse companies make well-informed decisions about the people they involve in their business. And to be clear, we really are focused on employers for whom the acceptable margin of error in their hiring decisions is razor thin. That means we don't cut corners to lower costs it means that although we have amazing technology, we don't substitute tech for situations where people will produce a better result. And it means that we're usually the most expensive option, but also the best value for an employer who's evaluating their employment screening process. To help in that evaluation, we've identified the most common ways background check companies cut corners that impact the quality, accuracy, and depth of the information they provide employers. You can review the six questions you should ask your background check partner at imperativeinfo.com slash six, that's S-I-X. And of course, you can always reach out to Imperative to discuss your background check process through our website at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 116 and enter the keyword network. That's N-E-T-W-O-R-K. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Jeppe Wilstrup Hansgart. So how, what do you attribute that to? What do you think it is that's, that makes somebody unwilling to ask for help? Do you think it's a culture thing where we're, I, I'm, I'm, I feel very competitive with my peers or 
is it, you know, everybody that we're hiring has imposter syndrome and they don't want to show all, they don't want to show their perceived ignorance or what, what, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, the imposter syndrome is definitely there, right? So, so I normally say we, we, we don't want to show our incompetencies, right? That we actually have to ask for help. And, and that especially applies to a, like a, a highly educated area, like a research and development organization or in a law firm or whatever, right? The more education you have, the less likely you are to ask for help. Interesting. And so building in our onboarding process, then here's your resources. Here's on a day-to-day basis who who you can always reach out to if you've got questions and maybe even having, you know, once you've identified that person, having them do something proactive to reach out to those people. How do you, you know, how do you make sure that that those relationships get formed? So, well, it requires conversations. Definitely, right? You you need you need to have this matching in place. Who should talk to who, uh, and in many cases also about what. And then you need a discipline around actually making sure that those conversations take place. Because as you know, I mean, just because we have one conversation, that is not building a connection, right? You you need more than that. Uh, we can see that actually uh, it takes up to five conversations before people really are willing to. To, to actually open up and share stuff uh, to with each other when they have that in the inside company. So five is, is a good number for me to remember. Interesting. So those intentional conversations, would that be like a just a, a one-to-one that we're going to schedule every week or something like that with this peer who's uh you know who's been you know identified and we're just going to have those you know where that peer takes the initiative to say how's it going what's yeah. what's challenged you this week those kind of things it, it's it's it was so you can call it mentoring almost right okay sure or, or reverse mentoring in some cases right because sometimes it's also good for 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 the old people in the organization actually to listen to newcomers um so it goes both ways I would say. Okay. Can I can I give you share with you maybe a really good example from uh, this is from the US or from Boston, so a biotech company, uh, and then in, in that company we actually looked at, uh, of course we looked at the networks and the influence and all of that stuff, but we also looked at uh, tenure in the company, so we could see who was it that connected to who, uh, and then we added performance to it, and this is where the real surprise came to us. We could see that amongst the high performers, right, the high performers sought out the uh, the other high performers, so they had their own little network, right. Then you had the the solid performers, they were called. The solid performers, they connected to solid performers and to some extent also to the high performers because they aspired to be high performers, right. So what about the newcomers? Who do they connect to? Well, they did not or had not built the credibility in the organization yet. So the only ones who were really willing to talk to them were the low performers. Ah. Yeah, <laughs> that's not really how you want it, right? So, so, but that dynamic exists, right? So, so we could see that the low performers were actually the ones listening to and connecting with the newcomers. But that's not who you want. So how do you how do you help how do you help those newcomers break into that higher performance resource? Exactly. Yeah, you need to make sure that you actually build those intentional connections, as you said, right? The other thing is, I normally say that is really important is that don't have like a, a massive onboarding program where you take you one hundred new employees, you put them away for training for one week or whatever. 
because what happens is that when new people come into an organization, that you have a certain space for building connections in your brain. Uh, and 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 uh, and when you are new to an organization, you have, I mean, the space is open for building it, right? The question is, with whom should you fill it? Do you want to fill it with other newcomers? Well, that doesn't really give you any integration with anyone, right? Or do you want to fill it with with the right people, the the, the people you really need to connect to? And that's where the discipline comes into to the picture. Uh, and most organizations, they have, uh, in my view, uh, the wrong uh, attitude to uh, to onboarding. They forget about people relationships and networks. Well, it's interesting because I was uh, just working with an organization uh, a few weeks ago that was describing their onboarding, and they have they call them cohorts the the people that came in into the into yeah. the organization at the same time, and they have a bunch of social activities for those folks to go do stuff together and to, to really integrate them together, but they may be better off if they made sure that some of those influencers or that three percent or those mentors were part of that or that those groups as well, yeah. You need, they need to get exposed to the doers, et cetera, right? It's it's a word of mouth. Who do I who should I get in contact with if I want to get this done, right? It's normally not within your team, but 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 that word of mouth you need to connect them to. Very very interesting. So so let, okay, we identified that three percent now, and we've got let's say we've we've incorporated them into it. Uh, we've got them on board. Uh, yeah. They've given their feedback and are bought in. Yeah. Um, then how do we what is how did they influence you know the you know the the self interest i guess and the view of each of those other individuals how do we how do we make sure it gets down to that granular level uh without compromising i guess the trust that people have in those influencers exactly and now you don't want to give them a yellow t-shirt where it says i'm an influencer that's probably the worst thing you can do right you, you and that's where i'm saying you need to convince them to co-create with you or collaborate with you, right? So they define what are the activities that actually make sense in this context. If they want to take ownership then over some of those activities, then you're in the winning position. That That's the best place you can be, actually. Well, then they, then they take that back to their to their groups and, and do, is it um, – are they the ones then that introduce – the the idea of the change or are they just available when the change is announced you know as resources for no you for still have to do the top down communication or the top communication mm-hmm. right but they are then the ones that people will seek out and ask so what is this new thing that the top uh, executives are, are launching here right and that's where they are the sense makers they okay. are actually the ones that will tell them this is actually okay this is this is this is good for the company I like that term, the sense makers. Yeah, okay. So they can make it make sense. I know they they remove the resistance, right? That's what they do. Perfect. Okay. And they just do that naturally because if they bought in and they're trusted, then they've, they probably earned that trust. Yeah. And so uh, they, and they, they get the big picture. Yeah. From a, you know, employment laws being what they are different in every state and different in every country, but, um, would you say that once you've identified 
that those three percent who are, you know, I'm sure you can have three the three percent who are negative too. I mean, some of you know, yeah, some of those people that. can have a negative influence as well. Yeah. Uh, but if you have identified the ones who are positive, who are really can you know contributing and are trusted, maybe they're not your your top performers as far as whatever the actual role is, but they are, you know, they're they're the glue in in those work groups. Uh, you identify them. How do you treat them? You know, when you're looking at compensation and all the retention issues, does does their retention become a bigger priority for the organization uh, than it might have been otherwise? I, th- I think one of the things that happens is that that uh, I mean, the first thing you do is actually you tell them uh, that's what, at least what we recommend as an open approach here. You actually tell them, well, your peers have identified you as a person that matters. That is a praise that really is good to have, right? Just imagine you, you suddenly you hear that everybody's actually pointing to you. I mean, that will retain a lot of people from moving around, I can tell you. We, we typically don't recommend that you give them a different role or that you give them a race or whatever, because that changes the us and them dilemma, exactly. I mean, if you put them into a group now, separate from, from where they actually have their informal influence, right? Mm-hmm. Then then they're gone. Their influence um, evaporates. So you want to keep them in the, the normal work setting. And that also means the way you engage with them has to be somehow informal in, 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 uh, in the way it, it is done, right? So that's, a, that's really interesting. And I can see where a leader who's trying to turn all the, the knobs and levers to, you know, for lack of a better term, m- manipulate or influence things would almost even try to curry favor with these influencers rather than just build a, a more organic trust and, you know, and, and really include their buy-in. So, cause these guys, the ones that you want are clearly not the ones who are just sycophants or, 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 you know, they're brown nosing the boss all day because those people don't have trust with their peers. And so, um, so you've got to keep them plugged into the, into the organization, but at the same time, maybe they're the first to know they're the ones who get input into, you know, you know, who get to represent their, their peers informally. Or you ask uh, them for advice on how should we do this, right? How should we massage this into the organization? I actually have a good example from uh, close to your region, uh, not a bit south, uh, I think, of where you're based. It's a logistics company, uh, uh, 20 locations. Uh, the president now knows his 3%, right? Every single time he visits one of those locations, what's the first thing he does? He doesn't talk to the leaders. He actually talks to the influencers, those 3%, right? Try to understand so what is going on here, right? What's on your mind? What are the questions that I should ask, et cetera, right? And then he has the meetings with the leaders, which is all good. And then he ends with a town hall meeting. And and just to make sure that he actually gets questions that are also, I mean, a bit tough from the from the audience, he has actually, uh, he always decides to, to, to uh, answer the tough questions from the influencers first, us, just so they know he's actually going to, to respond to whatever we ask him. And that has worked enormously well, right? Because suddenly he has generated this trust, and 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 everybody knows what is going on in the organization. And that is, it's it's a really nice case. He also had this other thing he did that he took them out for 
Yeah, brown bag lunches, right? Do you call them? I think you call them yeah. brown bag lunches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So outdoor brown bag lunch, right? Because you immediately when you do that, you remove that formal barrier, right? I'm the boss. You're my employee, right? You 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 kind of level people out, right? So you're just sitting with them and and just having a having lunch and just you know you're it's not across a desk or you know from a podium. It's just it's it's just you know breaking bread with somebody to have a have a conversation. Yeah, I think that's important. So the good leaders know that, right? They need to level out that thing. So we're really we we we're up against time, but is there any last thought? Do you think a uh, last thing that you think a leader really ought to understand about these informal networks and how they affect uh, change? Well, there's so many things, right? One of the things we didn't touch upon, and and, and I know you you and I talked about this, is in our data we've seen that there are actually six things that actually block companies from succeeding with change. We call them the six change blockers. And if I just go through them really quickly, so one of the things, the first one is the leader, the unity of the leadership team. Is it acting as one? In most cases, it's not. Right. And we all know it, right? If, if I mean, if the employees see that the leadership team is not acting as one and supporting the change, well, you will not succeed. So that's number right. one. And some people just sometimes you just have to say, we're going to do this as an organization. And if this leader is not going to, get on, it's time for him to get off the bus. And, you know, and it's not a, if you don't believe in this, it's not a failure on your part. That's a hard conversation to have, but this is where we're going. And rather than drag you along and put you in a situation where you're uncomfortable or don't believe in what we're doing, well, you know, it's time for you to exit. And that's a hard conversation to have. <laughs> but but you have to. Sure. So, so that's number one. Number two, uh, where all the companies are also failing, or not failing, but a lot of our, is, is uh, the fragmentation of the network. So the more silos you have, the more, I mean, the more you're not working together, right? Uh, you, the less ripple effects you you will have when you try to, to convince people. And these influencers don't even have to be in the same work group, I guess. I, I, I'm, I'm reminded when I, when I was in healthcare 30 years ago, one of the people I connected to early in my career was actually in accounting. Uh, And we would have had very, I don't even remember how we connected initially, but we would have had very little interaction except that somehow we connected and we clicked and he had a lot more experience in the organization. And he was who I, especially early in that, in that, that part of that, engagement with that organization that I could, I could go to and say, what am I missing here? Or what's going on? You know, what's, what's driving this? Yeah. So, so that part, right. So the, the fragmentation, the more fragmentation, the more effort you need to put into your change. So that's number two. Number three is um, that two groups of people that are really, really important. It's the top leaders. Like we talked about before, do they support what you're trying to achieve? They have to. <laughs> across the board and then you got the three percent this three percent the opinion of this three percent is almost magnetic right if they are negative they're going to drag everybody else with them in the downward direction whereas if they're positive it's almost like an early warning signal right if they're positive they will convince the others so, so so that's number three number four is a basic thing is commitment is i mean do i like the company i work for if people do not like the company you're working for, well, you are going to have a hard time succeeding with any change, right? Because why would they ever uh, invest in this change, right? So that's number four. Then we've got two left. The two left are more on the implementation side. 
and it has to do with top uh, with the sorry the leadership the ongoing leadership support and, and, and tension I would call it to the change are they staying on top or are they just launching it and then going back to the corner office and then they check in again one year later because that's not good behavior you actually need to stay on top over time make sure that you add the resources needed and and so forth right and you you keep track of what is going on that's number five number six is is a basic one again i think it's it's the project team is the project team set up for success do they have enough resources and so forth what we often see is that companies when they hire us i mean not only us but in, in they, they, they have they come to the analytics part right they, now we have the analysis and they have no thoughts about okay what are we doing when we actually have to get this massaged into the organization and 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 it it, it really uh, no it, i i don't understand it it's about 80 percent of companies that forget about this last time what do you, what do they do instead dan i mean i you know if if i guess i'm i'm Maybe I'm just naive, but I, you know, are they just giving people marching orders, and and then we'll see you next year, or and you know, yeah. So, so this is where they suddenly put something on people's plate on top of whatever people are doing already, right? And then you got a full time position, and suddenly you now you also have to do this change job, right? And so, so that's that's where it goes. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is a priority in addition to all the other priorities you've got, and so. We're not going to relevel, and I think that's that happens. A lot of organizations that don't have really strategic planning sessions and uh, and don't have the accountability upward that you know uh, you know a manager can't challenge a director or a director can't challenge an executive. Uh, you know, okay, you've said this is what our priorities are this year. Now you're adding this. Does that mean these aren't priorities? Or you know, there's only so many hours in a day. We've only got so many resources to allocate. And you've got to challenge that back and, and tie it back to the, you know, whatever the strategic plan is. And uh, it's, it can't just be the flavor of the week, this, you know, because I think that that kills credibility too, right? If the leadership just shows up every week when we've got a new idea, exactly. that, that, that kills credibility and creates, yeah. and, and probably those influencers will be telling people, yeah, don't really worry about it because yeah, there'll be, be different next week. coming next week. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's worse. Well, we need to have a. I want to have you back just to to dig deeper in all six of those issues because I think we we've we've touched on the that three percent idea uh, and and those informal uh, networks. But I, I really want to dive into the rest of those. But for now, uh, thank you for uh, for joining me, Yepe. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Mike. And I want to thank my my friend, Dr. Maria uh, Gavrilova Aguilar, for introducing us. She's the senior lecturer at the. G. Brent Ryan, College of Business at the University of North Texas. And so I got to give her a shout out because yeah. uh, she is one of the people that I will get a comment from as soon as the podcast, as soon as the podcast drops on Thursday, she's always good to give me feedback and <laughs> usually point out where I was wrong. But anyway, so thank you, Maria. Yeah, and thank great. you again, Yeppe. Thank you. It's great to you. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upcharge is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey, as always. Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. 
I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, keep your chin up.